and speaking of Baziel, who built these things, supernaturally equipped by the Lord to do so, we read that he, Baziel, um, Bazaliel, excuse me, he made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Now, this is the altar that goes out front where the animal sacrifices will be, so it's not in the tabernacle, it's in the courtyard. So he made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood, five cubits with its length, five cubits its width. Remember, a cubit's 18 inches, generally speaking. So you just times one and a half, and you get your, your measurements, uh, a foot and a half for each cubit. It was square, and its height was three cubits. He made its horns on its four corners. The horns were of one piece with it. And he overlaid it with bronze. He made all the utensils for the altar, the pans, the shovels, the basins, the forks, the fire pans, all of its utensils he made of bronze. And he made a grate of bronze network for the altar under its rim midway from the bottom. He cast four rings for the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. So see, there's the contrast from the poles that would carry the most holy things. They were of gold. This pole is overlaid with bronze. Then he put the poles into the rings on the side of the altar, verse 7, with which to bear it. He made the altar hollow with boards. He made the lava of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he made the court on the south side. The hangings of the court were of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long. There were 20 pillars for them with 20 bronze sockets. The hooks on the pillars and their bands were silver. So we have some silver intermingled here with the bronze. Verse 11. On the north side, the hangings were 100 cubit long with 20 pillars and their 20 bronze sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. And on the west side, there were hanging of 50 cubits with 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. For the east side, the hangings were 50 cubits. The hangings of the one side of the gate were 15 cubits long with their three pillars and their three sockets. And the same for the other side of the court gate. On this side, they were hanging of 15 cubits with the three pillars and their three sockets. All the hangings of the court all around were fine woven linen. The sockets for the pillars were bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. And overlaying of their capitals were silver. And all the pillars of the court had bands of silver. The screen for the gate of the court was woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread of fine woven linen. The length was 20 cubits. And the height along its width was 5 cubits. Corresponding to the hangings of the court. And there were four pillars with four sockets of bronze. Their hooks were silver, and the overlay of the capitals and the bands were silver. All the pegs of the tabernacle and of the court all around were bronze. So we have the metal of bronze here. And again, the tabernacle is rectangular, and it's about 50 yards long. So it's half a football field, but not as wide. So it's the length, and then it's more narrow as it's rectangular. And this is the outer court where it had like a curtain, almost like a fence, and you would come into that, and that's where you'd have the altar where you made these sacrifices. That's why the utensils are like kitchen utensils, because they'd offer the various animals that were offered up as uh, sacrifices for sin. Now, when we get to Leviticus, it's the sin offering, the burnt offering, the trespass offering, the heave offering, the wave offering. We've seen some of this already going through Exodus as God was preparing the way. But the thing to always remember about these offerings is all of them point toward Christ. Because we're told that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we are told in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, looking back on the Old Testament, that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but they're shadows of things to come. And when Christ came and died on the cross for our sins, all this animal sacrificial system, which was very important to the Lord, is replaced. And we're told that 
Jesus, rising from the grave, ascending to heaven at the right hand of the Father, and ever lives to intercede for us, he replaces the priesthood of Aaron, which we'll get to shortly before we're done tonight, the Levitical priesthood, because he's a priesthood of a higher order, according to Melchizedek. And he forever has entered into the holy place in heaven. And remember, these things are models of things in heaven. And that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, just cover it up. And that Jesus makes them obsolete. There are things that we understand are obsolete. A-track cassette players are obsolete. There are things that just are obsolete. I remember when he said, like, the little Walkman iPhone, like, not the iPhone, but just the little Walkman, the little pod, iPod thing. And I thought it was so cool. My kids had them when they were, like, six, when they were like 2005, 2006, and I would borrow theirs to go on the treadmill, and I, like, I could listen. It's like, this is really cool. Like, it's better than a cassette player like we had in the 80s, right? When you travel on a plane in the 80s, you would have the smoking section, and you'd have your Walkman, and you'd play a cassette, and you couldn't just re-hit. You had to rewind, rewind. So like listening to Pretenders on the way to Australia, I rewind to the song like 20 times in the middle of the road, like over and over and over, right? That's all obsolete. None of you are using a cassette player, Walkman. It's obsolete. So this is a shadow of things to come, but Christ makes it obsolete. And it's just noteworthy that way. It's important to have the context. But let's think about this. This was obviously very important to the Lord, the Father, because he did this for 1,500 years. For 15 centuries, that is a very, very long time. Like, we're barely 200 years old, and we're trying to hold this together. The Jews existed as a people in their promised land for 1,500 years, and this tabernacle and then the temple were the central place of worship till it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, but then rebuilt by Ezra. It's amazing. But then Jesus, of course, said that he would replace all this, destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. So even the tabernacle and the temple were symbolically speaking of Christ, his body, and what he would do for us. That's this tabernacle. It's bronze. Did you catch that? <clears throat> if you've ever competed in sports, there's gold, there's silver, and there's bronze. And let me tell you, I've received all three. And surfing, they even have copper. So if you're a fourth-place team, like you make the final four, like basketball, they have copper. So when we competed in world championship events as Team USA or Great Britain or Chile, um, you could get gold, silver, bronze, or, in the case of surfing, copper. It's a decrease of value of metals, right? And having won gold, gold feels a lot better than silver or bronze. I don't know. It's obviously worth more. We could go on Monex website and see how much gold's worth right now an ounce and how much silver's worth and how much bronze is worth, and we'll see a distinction of those things. God gave distinct metals with distinct purposes. Here's the challenge with bronze. I was coaching the U.S. team for the first time back in 07, 08. And we were doing a training. It's that day when Pete Carroll, the coach of USC football, came down to hang out with us and watch us train, along with Bob McKnight from Quicksilver, the president. They came to watch the team train that day. And one of our top athletes, we were, we were doing a training camp, and we were having a team contest. And we just, you know, we just, you know, when you're a coach, you just do things. So we did this structure where we had, like, you couldn't win the gold. You went to, like, a, a bracket where you couldn't win the gold, but you could still win bronze. And you can learn a lot by how much people want bronze. And by the way, this goes on in the Olympics, if we ever have the Olympics again, which is another story for another time. But in the Olympics, like with tennis or wrestling and even team volleyball, stuff like that, they have the consolation final for bronze. You remember that? Like, so, for example, it's, let's just say it's um, Federer against Nadal for gold, 
and then maybe it'd be DePotro playing someone for bronze to try and win the bronze. And that match will happen before the, the gold medal match, but the winner of that match gets a bronze medal. And it's very interesting in the Olympics when you have that bronze medal match. And by the way, you have an archery too, because archery is man on man or woman on woman. So if you lost your semifinal, the two semifinal winners go to the final for gold and silver, but the two losers go to this match for bronze. And what's very interesting about the bronze medal match is usually someone is psyching to still win a medal and someone else is over it. If you've ever paid attention, and I have for years on this, some people, if they can't have gold, they are over it. They don't, if it's not gold, or as uh, one of those U.S. team surfers used to say, silver's first loser. And I was like, you know, I mean, <laughs> I've gone to world championships, come home with no medals. I, I'll take a silver over nothing. But I got to say, when we got silver after getting gold, it, it felt like a loser. So I kind of, once you had gold, silver is a step down. Remember, Solomon had gold shields. And his son, Rehoboam, what did he have? Bronze shields. Yeah, it was a degeneration. It was a retraction. Uh, as a step down. And it's, it's, that's a whole other Bible study, too. But here's something about bronze. When we did that training that day with Bob McKnight from Quicksilver and Pete Carroll there, this star surfer was eliminated from being able to win gold. And he had to surf this heat at Huntington Pier going for bronze. And he fell off on every wave. He didn't care. He didn't take it seriously. And it was really like he showed a side I'd never seen before because he's generally a really easy guy to coach and, and uh, a leader. He's, he was like almost like our captain in a way. He was a senior in high school, so it was his last year on the World Junior Team. And his mom came. It was one of those epic moments. She came and yelled at me in front of Pete Carroll. I was like, really, not today. Please, not today. She came and just read me in front of Pete Carroll. I'm like, it's, it's Pete Carroll. Could you yell at me tomorrow? It's Pete Carroll, USC, fight on. You know, like that kind of a thing. And she yelled at me. And I told Pete, <laughs> it was a classic moment. It's not really part of the story, but it's a good thing. I said to Pete, I go, I'm really sorry about that. And he goes, you should see what I deal with. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, you see what I deal with? No, it's all good. I was like, wow. I just got railed. The hardest I've ever been railed by a parent in front of anybody was that day in front of Pete Carroll. I was like, well, there goes my bubble of, you know, let's impress Pete Carroll and get season tickets to, you know, the, the Trojan fight on. But I called that young man later that day on the phone. I'll never forget it. I called him. And it was the last day of our training camp. So we all went our way, and I just, he was really shut it down. We did a team photo. He shut it down. And I called him. I explained to him. I said, you know, there might be a day when you wake up and your wife has cancer and she's dying, and you still got to go to work, and you're not going for gold. You're going for bronze. You just got to get up and go to work. I said, you know, most of the people in the world get up and don't get to go for gold. Do you understand that? Like, you got to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because you feel like it. Life is hard, and hard things happen in life, and bad things happen to good people, okay? Like, it's not always gold. You don't always get to go for the gold. And I'm trying to help you because this young man did not have a dad at all in his life. And I said, I'm trying to help you become a man. I could care less about surfing. And the next time you're in a heat where it's for bronze, you need to give 100%. Not for me, but for you because life is cruel, and bad things happen. And you can't just quit because you can't get the gold. Give it everything you got when there's still a chance to go for bronze. And don't sell yourself short. So I say all that 
because when I see the colors of metals, there is a distinction. And I wonder to myself, I wonder for Bezalel if it was harder to build the bronze than it was the gold. Because gold is more exciting. Wouldn't you think like the Ark of the Covenant is more exciting to make of gold? I mean, the cherubim, the artwork, it's like, wow, like you're building angels and it's where the worship is and the covering of the mercy seat and just like as an artist, like how much you'd be into it and it's gold and it shines and when you're overlaying the acacia poles with gold, it's like, wow, hey guys, come over here. Hey, check this out. Ithamar, check out this gold. It's like, look at this line here. Look at the gold. And it's like, it's just so different. And then the bronze, oh, this is we're going to kill animals for 1,500 years. This is going to be a bloody mess. The mercy seat, you only come in once a year, and it's Yom Kippur. It's really special. It's so special, only one human being ever gets to see it once a year. And he's got holiness to the Lord on his forehead with a turban. This bronze thing, everybody sees the bronze thing. They bring their goats. They bring their cattle. They bring this and that. They bring the turtle doves. Bronze is not nearly as exciting as gold. So I wonder if he gave it the same effort and the same focus and the same passion that he gave the gold. And I ask myself, do I give the things God's called me to do? Gold's exciting. In the world championships, as a coach, there were mornings we woke up on the last day and we're in it. We got, we got a chance for gold. You can't sleep, by the way. It's just like, oh, super gurgly. I mean, how many times are you going to be a world champion, right? So it's like, oh, it's just like, can't even sleep. up at like 4, 3 in the morning, like going, oh. you know, <laughs> like, Lord, this, if it could ever be my day, could this just be my day? And I've had those days where we could go for the gold and we got the gold. And I've had the days where we go for gold. And it didn't go our way right off the bat. And okay, maybe silver. Okay, hoping for bronze. And I've had other days where we got up on the last day, particularly 09 with the U.S. junior team in Ecuador. After I'd been super sick, some of you might remember that experience when I got violently sick in Ecuador. It took me months to recover. Um, I almost died in Ecuador. I was that sick. But that last day, I'd come back from being super sick, and we were going for copper. You know, it's just not the same Sunday morning. Let's go for the copper. Come on, team, let's get copper. It's just like, it's kind of just, just, but I'll tell you what, we need that French surfer to get fourth in that four-man final in the last heat, and we get copper. By golly, he got fourth. And to get on the podium and get some copper and to go home with a medal in your carry-on baggage is better than not. So the moral of the story is give your best effort, whether you're going for copper, bronze, silver, or gold. It's easy to go for gold. It's harder to go for bronze. It's easier to give your best artistic effort and your first fruits for gold and the mercy seat that's super special than it is for bronze and the altar of sacrifice that's a bloody mess. And yet the same person built them both. And so we move on with that thought from Colossians. Whatever you do, do it heartily, not unto men, but as unto the Lord. We want to have the same character, the same effort, whether God's saying you're building a gold mercy seat or a bronze altar of animal sacrifice. I think Bezalel, I'm inclined to think he gave 100% gold or bronze. He didn't quit or tank it or just throw in the towel.
I think he gave the same effort when going for bronze in the consolation final that he would in going for gold in the gold final. Verse 21. This is the inventory of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, which was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, son of Aaron the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses, and with him was Ahaliab, the son of Asimach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer of weaver and blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine linen. This is the garment industry, like just really good garment work. Verse 24, all the gold that was used in the work of the holy place, that is, the gold of the offering, was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And the silver from those who were numbered the congregation was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca for each man, that is a half shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. For everyone included in the numbering from 20 years old and above, for 600 3,550 men. And from the hundreds of talents of silver were cast the sockets of the sanctuary, the bases of the veil, the 100 sockets for the 100 talents, the one talent for each socket. Then from the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars, overlaid their capitals, and made bands for them. The offering of bronze was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. And with it, he made the sockets for the door of the tabernacle meeting, the bronze altar, the bronze grating for it, all the utensils for the altar, the sockets for the court all around, the base for the court gates, all the pegs for the tabernacle, all the pegs for the court all around. I would just point out that there is an accounting, isn't there? There's an accounting. There's an accounting to the shekel for gold, silver, bronze, and what? People. Did you catch that? Because the people paid the half shekel silver tax, the men, over 20. To the person, there's an accounting. And it just reminds us that God is a God of details, and we have stewardship. We're told in Proverbs to know the state of our flocks. It's good to know where we're at. It's good to know the accounting. You can't run a business without knowing what you have in inventory and what's being ordered and who's going to ship it and these types of things. It's, it's good to be accountable, and we've been talking about this throughout Exodus, and this is accountable accountability for gold, silver, and bronze to the very weight of the shekel for gold, silver, bronze, and people. And isn't it interesting that there's exact counting for bronze as there is for gold? Isn't that interesting? Because, again, you might get sloppy with the bronze because it's not nearly worth the same as the gold. If you had the gold coin, you would, again, value that more than the silver dollar, the American Eagle silver dollar, or something that's bronze or copper. But yet, it's, it's accounting for every shekel of the bronze, of the silver, of the gold. And if you go to the parable of the minus, when the people give an account, the servants give an account to the master in that parable, one had five, made ten, one had two, made four, one had one, and buried it. But they're all accountable. So whether you got one, you're accountable. Whether you got two, you're accountable. And whether you got five, you're accountable. And it's interesting, again, that the one that got two made four and the one that got five made ten, they doubled, 100% return, and they both have the identical thing said to them by the Lord. So it wasn't the value or the quantity of the value that they received. It's what they did with it that brings the reward. The two verses in Matthew, uh, excuse me, Matthew 25 between verses 13 and 31, in the context of the return of the Lord, 
that the one who got two, four, and five, ten, the, the master says the exact same thing to them. And Jesus is teaching that as something to prepare us for what eternity is like when we stand before the Lord. What's your point, Joey? Keep track of your shekels. Bronze, silver, gold. And most importantly, certainly value all human beings. Chapter 39. Of the purple, say so now, now we get to the priesthood and the making of all the priesthood stuff. And so, again, we have a lot of text here. I'll read through it. You can read along in your mind with me as we, as we go for uh, some verses here. Of the purple, of the blue, the purple, and scarlet thread, they made garments of ministry. For the ministering in the holy place and made the ministering and made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord commanded Moses. He made the ephod, that's you know, the, the robe, of gold, blue, purple, scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. They made shoulder straps for it to couple together, for it was coupled together at its two edges. And the intricately woven band of his ephod was, was of the same workmanship, woven of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine woven linen, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And they set the unic stone, enclosing the settings of gold. They were engraved as signets are engraved with the names of the sons of Israel. He put them on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. So remember, Aaron would wear this, and he bore the, the names of Israel on his shoulders. He carried them. Verse 8, And he made the breastplate artistically woven like the workmanship of the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread of fine woven linen. And they made the breastplate square by doubling it. A span was its length, and a span its width when doubled. And they set it in four rows of stones. A row with sardis, topaz, and emerald was the first row. The second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jaconith, an agate, and amethyst. The fourth row was beryl, unix, and a jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold in their mounting. There were 12 stones according to the names of the sons of Israel, according to their names engraved like a signet, each one with its own name, according to the 12 tribes. And they made chains for the breastplate of the ends, like braided cords of pure gold. They also made two settings of gold and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. And they put the two braided chains on the gold and the two rings on the ends of the breastplate. The two ends of the two braided chains, they fastened in two settings and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front. And they made two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastplate on the edge of it, which was on the inward side of the ephod. They made two other gold straps and put on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod towards its front, right at the seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod. And they bound the breastplate by means of its rings to the ring of the ephod with a blue cord so that it would be above the intricately woven band of the ephod. And the breastplate would not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the robe of the ephod of woven work all, all blue. And there was an opening in the middle of the robe like the opening of a coat of mail with a woven binding all around the opening so it would not tear. They made on the hem of the robe pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet of fine woven linen. They made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates on the hem of the robe all around between the pomegranates. A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate all around the hem of the robe to minister in as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then they made tunics artistically woven, so those are hats, of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, a turban of fine linen, exquisite hats of fine linen, short trousers of fine woven linen, and a sash of fine woven linen with blue, purple, and scarlet thread made by a weaver as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote out the inscription like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord, and they tied it to a blue cord to fasten above the turban as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
We see that phrase here repeatedly in this passage, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So this priesthood garment is very important. You had to look a certain way. Obviously, again, it's kind of funny, but just talking about the surf team again, every year we'd, we'd discuss like what kind of uniforms we wanted to wear for the opening ceremony, what kind of gear we'd want on, uh, you know, when we're at the beach for 10 days straight. I remember with Calvary Chapel football, it was a big deal when they got new helmets because they used to have the eagle, and then they got the CC with the cross. That was really cool. And, you know, your uniform, it's like, you know, you represent your brand. And if your brand is a special brand, you, you like to represent. And, you know, this is, you, you want it to have value. In fact, when I became the coach of the Trillion Surf team, one of the things I try to do is teach them to value their brand. They love being Chileans, but they weren't confident as competitors and athletes. And so through training, we had to build their confidence that they were ready for this moment. And they carried themselves like they belonged. And there would be a measure of pride in a good way to wear a uniform like your team, Chile. Equipo de Chilanos Surfistas. It's an honor. You know, it's, it's an honor to wear, to wear that. And it took a while, but by the time we left, it was. It was an honor. When we began at Varsity JV, I mean, I went up and down the Chilean coast 3,000 miles to find six girls that could surf and stand up and do a turn. Literally, to just fill a team. You know, if like you're at a school and you're just trying to fill your JV girls softball team or something, get 10 girls that can play or 11, get, have a bench play or something. And, but by the end, there were many people that wanted to do it. And in the beginning, you, if you just could pay your way to go to somewhere you could represent your country, but it didn't feel like it was earned. But as we trained and as we did trials and people had their hearts broken by not making the team and people had the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat like the old ABC Wild World Sports opening, it, it took on a greater measure. And suddenly when you wore that Chilean equipo de Chilanos in the opening parade, it, it meant something more. It was a big deal. You didn't just, your parents just didn't buy it for you because you come from money in Chile. You earned it. And by the time we left, I mean, it really, you know, the best result ever for Team Chile was last year in Huntington Beach, a couple years after we moved on. It was their best result. Some great top 10 finishes. And the, to wear the brand Chilean surf team meant a lot more because it created value. So now we think about that and how that works. This is the linen garment of the high priest coming from heaven, a model of things in heaven. What a privilege. What an honor. Again, think of if you went to, you walked on at Modern Day High School and you wanted to play for, you know, Modern Day Girls Softball. We've had some girls that play for Modern Day Softball um, here at the church, the con girls, or whatever, you know, it's like, or even to play college sports, like, you know, just, it, it's something special. Now you come back to this. This is all grace called by the Lord. I think how Aaron's going to feel when he puts his stuff on after he built the golden calf. Talk about, like, you shouldn't even be on the team. <laughs> and you're the starting quarterback. Holiness to the Lord. Here we go. Opening day, right? It's beautiful. You could read this and go, like, what? What is this? Like, is this, you know, am I, am, am I, am I like Joanne's buying stuff or something? I'm going to build some materials to build a mask or something. No, this is the priesthood stuff. This is beautiful, glorious garments with special, precious metals and jewels, and it's glorious. And it's a model of things in heaven. Don't miss it. It's beautiful. And is there anything more beautiful than the high priest with the holiness of the Lord? Which means set apart. God is holy. God is light. Him is no darkness at all. Don't you think it's great that whoever is representing the Lord would 
would be the would be called to be representing that character. And again, with companies, when you go to work for different companies, there's a culture, right? They teach you about culture. My Olympic training with the USOC, we studied Joe Gibbs racing. We studied the Navy SEALs. We studied British women's field hockey, extremely successful, BMW Europe. We studied companies and sports that were extremely successful for their culture. And when you came in, there's an identity that you're coming into. You know, churches have culture. Your family has culture. If someone came to live with you, there's a culture, a standard of your home, right? This is what it's like in our home. Um, that's how it works. This is the kingdom culture. So priest, you can take a bath, and you're going to put the stuff on, and it's an incredible calling and privilege to put on that high priest gold plate that says holiness to the Lord. But it's all grace. It really is, isn't it? Right? Isn't it, WG? It's all grace. And, but we, and we can really take this further because when we give our life to Christ, we are declared righteous. We are declared righteous, perfectly righteous before God the Father because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Our practical righteousness is like Aaron. We might build golden calves. We might help people build golden calves, and it's very embarrassing, but our positional righteousness has not changed. So we might see like failure before the Lord on Tuesday, June 30th, when we look in the mirror. But because we're in Christ, the Father sees holiness to the Lord because he sees us in Christ. And in Christ, all are justified through faith. So really, once we give our life to Christ, we have holiness to the Lord right over our forehead in the kingdom goggles of the dimension of eternity. And Aaron couldn't get it done anyways. I mean, Jesus came and lived the perfect sinless life, and then it's reckoned to our account when we put our faith in him. There's something beautiful about this. Just picturing the opening ceremonies I've been a part of for world championships, and I just picture these priests, and we're going we're gonna to get to them still. Verse 32. Thus the work, all the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting was finished, and the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. And they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent, all of its furnishings, its clasp, its boards, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, the covering of ram skin dyed red, the covering of badger skin, the veil of the covering, the ark of the testimony with its poles, the mercy seat, the table, all of its utensils, and the showbread, the pure gold lampstand with its lamps, the lamp set in order, all of its utensils, and the oil for light, the gold altar, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, the screen for the tabernacle door, the bronze altar, its grade of bronze, its poles and all of its utensils, the laver with its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars, its sockets, the screen for the court gate, its cords and its pegs, all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, and the garments of ministry to minister in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and his son's garments to minister as priests, according to all the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. Then Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it as the Lord commanded, just as they had done it, and Moses blessed them. This is a happy chapter. Did you catch that? This is a, this is a pretty happy chapter in the Bible. They did what they were supposed to do. They did all the work. They did it exactly how they are supposed to do it. The job's done in that sense. They bring it to the boss, the foreman, Moses, and Moses says, hey, good job. And he blessed them. He pronounced blessings upon them. And there are blessings upon us when we complete the job. When we seal the fruit, as we talked about last week in Romans 15. There are blessings upon us when it's done. Like we said in the Proverbs earlier, a matter completed is better than one spoken of. There's just something about when you finish a project, you finish a term paper, you finish your degree, you finish this, you, you finish that. There's just something about completion. 
That's why every year when we get the, the graduation cards from high school seniors, they're very valuable to me. I get about two to five a year being a pastor. You know, congregants, kids grow up. They're part of our children's ministry. Got four of them this year. A couple from WG. Jim O'Connor, my assistant pastor in Vermont who took over for me. His youngest daughter graduated high school this year, Hope. She wasn't even born when we came back to California, right? But I would say if, if, if a high school senior thinks enough of me to send me a, uh, a graduating card, we always send them a gift, a generous gift, because we want them to know we believe in them. Because graduating high school is a big deal. Graduating college, obviously, is a big deal. But graduating high school is a big deal. It's kind of like that first, like, really big deal. And I like junior high graduations. I used to have them at Calvary. I mean, kindergarten graduation is not bad, too. When your grandpa and you see the kids graduate, we'll find out soon, huh? They're for the grandparents, right? I mean, isn't every kindergarten graduation for the grandparents, right? I mean, some parents, but it's really for the grandparents. But there is some that, you know, all four of my kids graduate Calvary Chapel High School, 08, 10, 13, and 15, and they're special. And there's something very special about it. It's a big deal. It's a... And you, you know, you see the senior photos that they do when they send you a card, you know, they're graduating. They look like adults. They, they always look like adults. You know, it happens every year. By golly, Garrison Crosco looks like an adult. He looks like a man. He's got his, like, his man face on. A job well done and things being completed. And we definitely, you know, to just on that thought, you know, we pray for the seniors here Saturday night. We want to be people that speak life and build people up. We always want to encourage people on jobs well done. People hear enough what they didn't do and how they didn't do it right. You know, it's good to be people. The Bible talks about speaking words of life and edifying and building up. We all know that we make mistakes. We all know that we fail. We all know that we can get discouraged if we look in the mirror too long. What we need to know is that God loves us. He forgives us. He believes in us. He's got a plan for us. And today is a new day. That's what people uh, need to know. And so a job well done. And there's just something good about not just having the check that you're working on, but when the line goes through the task. Because I'll check it when it's under construction. But when it's done, that line goes through. It's like, yeah, it's a good feeling. Job well done. Particularly jobs that the Lord has entrusted to us and we know that he's put us over them he's guided us through them which he should with all of our jobs and he seals the fruit most of you don't know what it's like to get in a a truck moving from a a state where you move to start a church and you're leaving that church there's a lot of time to reflect when you're doing stuff like that and we've done that a couple times and now many of you know it's like to leave a place of employment where you completed something and you're moving on to new adventures we can just draw that, but you seal the fruit, and you a job well done as best as you can. And sometimes you can't seal the fruit the way you want to, right? Sometimes you just can't. Sometimes you get let go. A friend of ours was here at church the other night, and he lost his job during COVID. And I said, what, did you get furloughed? And he goes, no, exterminated. <laughs> I go, wow. And his kid looked at him and went, like, Obviously, it's been a point of humor in the family because you just got to kind of go with it, right? What did you get furloughed? No, exterminated. So that's not sealing the fruit the way you wanted to. And COVID-19 certainly made sure a lot of us didn't seal the fruit the way we wanted to, right? Nonetheless, when it's done, 
even if it stops midway, you want to know that you gave it your best and it was a job well done, whether you ended it the way you wanted it to, foreseen it, foreseen it, or just the way that the Lord brought it about. But that you walk away and you know that Moses can bless you because it was a job well done. Chapter 40. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put in the ark of the testimony and parition off the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange the things that are be set in order on it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and light its lamps. You shall also set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony and put up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. Then you shall set the altar on the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water in it. That's that bathtub, verse 8. And you shall set up a court all around and hang up all the screen at the courtyard, court gate. And you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it. And you shall hallow it and all of its utensils and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering, all of its utensils, and consecrate the altar. The altar shall be most holy. Of course, it's a type of Christ coming on the cross. Of course, it's holy. Verse 11. And you shall anoint the laver in its base and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle meeting and wash them with the water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him, that he may minister to me as a priest. And you shall bring his sons and his clothes and clothe them with the tunics. And you shall anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may minister to me as priests, for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did. And it came to pass in the first month of the second year, of the first day of the month, so it's been one year, that the tabernacle was raised up. So Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards, put, its bar, put in its bars, raised up its pillars. He spread out the tent cover over the tabernacle, put the covering of the tent on top of it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it in the ark. That's the Ten Commandments. Inserted the poles through the rings of the ark, put the mercy seat on top of the ark, brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of covering, parishioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. He set the bread in order up before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil, and he burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now remember, the smell of that incense was unique only to the tabernacle. Nowhere else. It was a heavenly smell, super special. Verse 28. He hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle, and he put the altar burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle on the tent of meeting and offered upon it its burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord commanded Moses. He set the laver between the tabernacle of me and the altar and put water there for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with water from it whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting. And when they came near the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle of the altar, hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. So they, they set it up. So now it's operational, right? Like it's kind of like you're preparing to launch a business and now you're operational. Shipping, receiving, customers, it's all happening. You're in business. You're open for business. Here we are. You know, we're open for business. Come on in. And they set it up. Can you just imagine? And it was central to the way the tribes camped and traveled. It was in the center, right? So you had three tribes to the north, the south, the west, and the east. And the central place was where the Levites were and all this. So it was the center. 
There's a center. There's a city center. And there it was. It's like, it's awesome. It, on the one year exactly, the one year anniversary, it went up, and there they are. And here come the priests in their opening day uniforms. And here's Aaron with holiness to the Lord. Man, it's awesome. It's so special. They, they've done the cleaning. They've done all this. They finished the work. But you saw throughout this chapter that in the previous chapter, as the Lord had commanded, everything was according to God's order. There is an order. And they did it exactly according to his order. That's where the blessings are according to his order. But the last thing we see now is God meeting there. And we close with this tonight. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and fire over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys and their journeys was 40 years to get to the 39 years from this day to get to the promised land but remember everyone over 20 forfeited it by not going into the promised land the following year except for Caleb and Joshua and so really this story is about the ones that were under 20 because let's say you were 19 at that time you'd spend the next 39 years 40 years in the wilderness you would be moving towards social security uh, on a 40-year death march in the desert watching the previous generation die off, but you would still be a leader going into the promised land when it was your time to lead now your kids' generation. That 40-year wilderness wandering was very unique in human history of these people. And it's supernatural because God would guide them the cloud by day. All of a sudden, you're sitting there, you know, you're at your tent on a hot day in the middle of, you know, the Jor in Jordan, modern Jordan, and you're sitting there, you've been there for like a month and a half, and you're like, well, you know, what's the report on the old people dying? You know, what's the report? And it's not good. I, you know, I heard the tribe of Dan lost 120 people yesterday. No kidding. Yeah, well, we're, we're getting closer. But man, we've been stuck here for weeks. Like, when do you think we're going to move? Whenever the Lord moves us. Hey, look at that. All of a sudden, the clouds are like, that's how they were led. When the clouds stopped, they stopped. It's like your kids that, you know, like, how long are we going to be here for? As long as we need to be. Why are we going now? Because now it's time to go. And that's how it was. When it stopped, it stopped. When they went, they went. He guided them. He literally supernaturally guided them. Functioning in the realm of time, space, and matter, God was supernaturally guiding this generation to the promised land. And we're told for us in Christ that the Holy Spirit guides us in all truths and all ways that we need to go. We don't have that cloud over our head and that fire by night. And, you know, it would be a little easier if you could just look up, there's a fire. Hey, wait, wait, the fire's going this way. You know, that would be easier. But you can still know where the fire is going by being on your knees and praying and letting the still small voice of Christ, the Holy Spirit, guide us. We like easy. The Lord pursues depth and passion and purpose. We're thinking time. He's working on eternity. But one last thing I'd point out, and I mentioned this Saturday night. So we want to be spirit-led. We want the Lord to guide us. If he says sit, sit. If he says go, go. We, we want to be led that way. Daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, by the decade. This is how we want to live our lives. To know and recognize when the cloud and the fire are moving. And to follow and not resist it. Don't sit in a rut and watch the cloud take off without you. Get up and get moving. And don't take off like this and go like, yeah, let's go. And you turn around, the fire the fire's way back here. Hey, where are you going? 
We'll get back under that fire. Get back where the Lord's presence is. So we seek the Lord. He guides us. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow him. Right. So that's a promise. So as we just slow it down, join the Lord, he'll guide us. But here's the crown jewel of all this we close with right now. When they dedicated the tabernacle, God's glory came. The cloud from heaven came. It's a supernatural cloud. This is not June gloom. This is the real deal. This is a supernatural cloud. This cloud came, and the glory of the Lord came. They came together. And I mentioned this Saturday, so I say it again. The cloud and the glory went together. The two phrases are used together. The cloud and the glory. Supernatural. The cloud and the glory. At the dedication. And Moses couldn't even walk in. The presence of the Lord was so powerful. Then, 600 years later, when Solomon dedicates the temple, and there's putting the tabernacle out of business, and now it's the temple, this same thing. The cloud and the glory come. God came supernaturally in this dimension and met them right where they're at, and he, his presence overwhelmed them, and the people all fell on their faces and praised the Lord. Then in the New Testament, when Jesus is transfigured and his glory is revealed, the cloud comes and the Father speaks. And then looking back in Second Peter, as Peter's describing it, he said, we beheld his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration. So, cloud and glory, tabernacle, the Lord. Cloud and glory, temple, the Lord. Cloud and glory, Jesus in his first coming revealed to the three pillars, Peter, John, and James. But wait, there's more. Because when Jesus comes back in Matthew 24, we're told he comes on the cloud in great glory. We got one more cloud. We got one more cloud, body of Christ. And one more glory. And when that glory comes, we're told that we will be with him in his glory. Colossians 3. Even so, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Oh, there's one more cloud. There's one more glory. And this is the cloud and glory that exceeds all clouds and glory. For Jesus said, he's coming in the clouds, and every eye shall see him. And the kingdom comes. Yeah, stay on point. 